The reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. It's a portion of scripture that's just loaded with lots of stuff that God wants us to know. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice of every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to a former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Battery life, there I am. Thank you, Ron Stevens. I want to keep calling him Pastor Ron, because that's what we know him as. That's almost how I was introduced to him. He became Pastor Ron at Faith a little bit after I had arrived, somewhat 48 years ago or something like that. And um, that is, I just want to embarrass him, that is what longevity in the faith looks like. The life of Ron Stevens is dear wife Nancy, who is not with us this morning, but probably watching from home, uh, is uh, just a consistent and steady testimony of following and pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I know that is back when I first started here, um, I was headstrong and, and obnoxious, and he put up with every step of it, graciously. And, uh, and he's been very patient with me and just extremely faithful to the Lord. So again, let's embarrass him a little bit and thank the Lord for the testimony in his life. And thank you for reading the scripture for us this morning, too. I agree with you that there is so much packed in here that uh, will take us a little bit to get through. But before we get started, I, I'm just so thankful for the presentation for Night to Shine. You probably did the math in your head when um, when Sandy and Chase had said that we had 270-something volunteers. And the numbers are, there's two different 200 numbers there, 250 or so volunteers or something like that. If you do the math, what we can't say in this room is somebody else will do it. If you do the math, you think... I guess they need me. You know, a lot of times in church life and in volunteering and, and sort of serving in the capacity, we have a tendency to think somebody else will do the job. Now, fortunately at Faith, that hasn't been the case here, that we've had a high percentage of people that come to the church also find a place to serve in the church. But Pastor Tom was right when he said that Night to Shine pulls us all together like no other event or outreach that we do. And so not only is it an incredible 
um, um, outreach and service of love to the recipients, the guests that come and have that big party and celebration with us. It is a unifying event amongst the, um, the people of faith. I remember the first year that we did it, of course, it was live. And um, I remember being in line and we had two rows. You've seen the photos of the big red carpet that comes down and everything. And and nobody knew what we were getting into. We'd seen the videos. There's training. There's all this sort of stuff. But the first guests that came through those doors and the celebration and the cheers and everything that happens. And and I, I just know that I was I was next to uh, Mary Wadley and I just looked over at her and her eyes were, what is going on here? I didn't know it was this powerful. You know, it was just this kind of environment of like, wow, this is really happening and this is amazing. And and, I, and I'm with you as soon as the video starts. I, Chris hears me over there kind of like trying not to ugly cry. I'm like, <coughs> you know, it's just so moving and powerful and and incredible to to witness because I really believe that God's beauty is on display in his creation. And, um, and we know that he doesn't make mistakes, that he does all that he does for a purpose. And so we get to enter into that purpose. And so, uh, today we get to talk about dressing and dressing appropriately and everything. And then when I think of night to shine, I think of JJ dressing so appropriately for the event. You can stand and wave, but you don't have your cool suit on this morning. And, uh, man, that guy looks decked out to the extent that he had come to Night to Shine at least once, but maybe twice before coming to faith. And uh, not an invitation for you to speak and talk to me, mister. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love you. Um, but it, but it, but I remember we got to know him and the suit was just in our mind because this is a very loud, amazing suit. And so when he called the church and said, I, I'm thinking about coming and visiting, you may not know me. I was the guy with the suit. And we're like, oh yeah, we all knew you. And we haven't not known you since, right? Everybody knows and loves JJ. So anyway, that's, you know, kind of the aspect and the atmosphere that's created at Night to Shine and those connections and relationships that form. So I really do encourage you to take part. Uh, it's the kind of thing, and I'm just counting the months. Can we hurry up and get to February and see this thing happen again? Um, you know, and just thinking too about... Um, Saying hi to uh, to Nancy Stevens at home and everything makes me think too that we have Judy Halley, who is um, known by so many of you, but also the wife of Paul Halley, one of our elders, who is watching from a hospital room, most likely, actually maybe from home, but still watching from home after recovering from a um, stroke this week, and so we'll be praying for her. Hi, Judy. Um, also been able to visit with Elaine Burton, who has not been able to be here for a, a little while, and we know that she watches faithfully at home. And, um, and then we've always had, um, uh, the Browns, Pat and Linda Brown watching from home for years now. We don't get to see them very often, but a rumor tells me that we're going to be able to see Linda reading our scripture next week. So, um, so that's pretty cool. Um, but just wanted to let you know that even if you're not here in the room with us, which this is amazing and incredible to be a part of, uh, that you're missed. And, uh, we really are thinking about you when you can't be here. Well, as I said, the text this morning has, in my mind at least, um, and I know from the scriptures, but just the image or the metaphor that comes to mind is this idea of wearing clothing, and, and so, which is always a good idea, just public service announcement, always a good idea. Um, I am uh, a little bit out of the norm when it comes to the guys I hang with. I'm a little bit um, and you can't tell by looking at me, but I'm a little bit fashion conscious in the sense that I like a certain thing and I'll go out of my way to get it and everything. In fact, if you 
see Chris Small and I in the mall at any point or TJ Maxx or something, she'll be the first one finding a bench to sit. And I'll still be out there hunting the clearance racks and, you know, we'll meet at the register. And I'll be like, so you didn't find anything? She's like, nope. And I'm carrying out all the deals. And But I guess when you're naturally beautiful like she is, you don't need all of it. So anyway, scored points. <laughs> no, but these kinds of things, they, you know, I kind of, I, I look at, you know, that sort of thing is an opportunity to be appropriate to the environment that you're in. And I remember one time um, I had to um, I was I was new in a job that I had before coming to faith and and uh, had to be in uh, D.C. for um, a presentation. And um, I was meeting with two guys that are very well acquainted with this world. They hop on planes all the time. They were used to standing in front of their clients and spending, you know, months long engagements with them and everything. And I was this newbie sort of like not knowing what I was walking into. And the season of the time was right after 9-11. We're talking like weeks after 9-11 and needing to be in D.C. Well, as any of you probably had, we had news coverage on 24-7. So I was just seeing constant talking heads and politicians and the president speaking and everything. So in my mind, D.C. looked like the power suit, you know, the navy blue with the red tie and the white shirt and everything. And so I know I need to be in D.C. to do his presentation with a, I think it was like an aerospace and defense company or something like that. When I, when I get off the plane and I meet with these two other consultants who are there going, hey, it's good to have you here and everything like that. They look at me and they're like, was this a dress up thing? I didn't know we were dressing up and I instantly felt so out of place. Like it was clear to them. I was trying way too hard. You know, I was, I'd get off my best suit. It's probably a hundred dollar suit. Um, you know, and, and, and that power tie and everything. And I couldn't wait to make that impression and fit into the environment that I was in. But these guys were like, you know, khakis, button in plaid shirt and everything. They had done the deal for years. They knew these guys aren't going to be impressed with you trying to look like a DC insider. You know, they, they, this, they're over that whole thing and stuff. And I just remember feeling, I, at one point I was like, this is going to be, I'm going to impress them. I'm going to fit right in. And it instantly I was just like sticking out like a sore thumb. I think that oftentimes we, 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 we understand that clothing says a lot about who we are or what our state of mind is. It doesn't even mean for those that dress up or those that don't. It just says what your mindset is going into any environment. It was clear to my partners at the time that my mindset is, I want you to know I'm taking this seriously. I'm, I'm shooting my shot. You know, you might obsess about, well, are we going to dinner? What kind of dinner are we going to? Is this Applebee's? Nothing wrong with Applebee's. They even got a country song after them and everything. But it's not necessarily the thing that requires a suit and tie and that sort of thing. So what kind of engagement are we going to? If you're going to work, you think about what type of work am I doing? If you're walking around the job site, construction site with flip-flops and shorts, most likely you're not going to survive the day. Especially if you're walking where nails are discarded or they have you climbing on beams and things along those lines. You, you go into it thinking, what's the appropriate attire for me to get the job done in the environment that I'm going into? My personal philosophy, if you play golf, is if you don't know how to play the game well, at least look the part. So that's what I always try to focus on. It's all of those kinds of things. We do think about it sometimes subconsciously, but we think about, am I dressed appropriately for the environment that I'm walking into? God still cares about how you and I dress. Now, 
this isn't a cheap launch off to talk about something about the external that we have to, you know, focus on modesty or appropriateness or any of those kinds of things. Those things will become clear to you as you grow in the Lord as to how to approach those things. But this isn't a message about externals. This passage that we had read for us is about the change and the renewal of the heart that comes from the inside out. It presents the life of Christ in these wardrobe kind of terms that we have a new clothes closet available to us that we choose to put on on a daily basis. It's already been made available. It's already provided. It's waiting for you in the house. The choice is for you to open the closet and say, I'm wearing that today. But many in the church and Christianity over time have become accustomed to dressing from two closets. I have options. I have the old stuff that uh, frankly is often comfortable or nostalgic or something that I remember wearing back when I had this great moment in my life or something. And as long as I have that closet available to me, I know I can always go back to it when I need to. But yes, I recognize that there's new clothes that the Lord's provided and I should be wearing those as well. Sometimes we go back to the old closet because we're in a particular mood. I'm sick of being a goody goody. I don't want to work so hard. Why should I always be the one to forgive or any of those kinds of things? And so we go back to this metaphoric closet to say it feels good to put the old stuff on from time to time. Back when I looked out for me, back when I didn't have to try so hard. Or maybe I go back to that closet because I'm afraid of what this new life is calling me to, that I'm stepping out in faith and it's uncomfortable. So I want to go back to that old closet. Those clothes I know. I'm familiar with them. I recognize their smells and their feels and their fits. Sometimes, speaking here of our women and stuff, sometimes you got to put on that revenge dress. You got to say, I'm going to get the world back. And I'm going to dress just a certain way. And oftentimes we slip into that mindset of I'm tired of of rolling over just just because the gospel's called me to that forgiveness. I, I want to get somebody back. I'm going to go and put those clothes on that get that person back. But as I said, we know there's a new closet available to us. And it's not that we live in that old closet. We dip in and out from time to time. And sometimes we we feel this particular need. There's a financial crunch or a relationship drama, something like that, that causes us to go, I wonder what the Lord's got available to me in the new closet. I'm going to try some of that on because I've got to get some Jesus on me to see if I can fix my situation. Or maybe it's because I know other people are looking. Maybe I've got that that parent who says, you know, I want you to to work hard. I want you to love the Lord and go to church. Or I've got that that spouse that's expecting me to do certain things. So I'll go put that on and be like, here, does this look good on me? Does this make you happy? Or sometimes we just feel like we've got some good vibes going and it's fun to be in church and it's good to be in this atmosphere. And so it's like, yeah, I'll put some of that on. But every once in a while. We can do it based on sincerity. I recognize that that fit is better for me. I recognize that those are the clothes that I belong in. And so, Lord, I'm trying. I want us to just see here throughout this message that our old clothes, the ones that have been put off from us through the power of Jesus Christ, serve absolutely no purpose in the new life that we've been given. We, we have to flip that switch that says all of those old garments belong in that closet and they don't come out for any reason, certainly not of any benefit. 
When we examine these two lives, these two different closets at their core, we realize that they are diametrically opposed to one another. Brings you back to the prominent theme from the, the series, The Chosen. When they say, and this is kind of shown up on t-shirts everywhere and stuff, I was one way and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Do we recognize that the life that we've been given is a completely new wardrobe that is completely different from what we used to be comfortable in? This is how Paul starts our section off in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Paul is laying out his authority. He's saying these words are coming essentially from the same voice as Jesus Christ. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Certainly he's not talking literally about their stride or their manner of stepping or anything like that. He's talking about their conduct or their manner of life. Or as one uh, would say, it's, it's what you're occupied with. What, what gets, uh, gets you going, what moves you in a particular direction. That's what that walk is. He's saying, I want you to recognize that that's what the unbelievers used to walk like. Are you willing to put that aside? Are you willing to no longer be occupied with the things that the old life is occupied with? And he's talking to an audience here that is a lot like our culture today, that they were saved. They were, they were made new out of an environment or a culture that was completely wicked, obviously wicked, like on the nose, nasty about a lot of things. Their, their, their temple in their worship of Diana or Artemis is, is this kind of thing that was all, um, wrapped up in, uh, sexual expression and wealth accumulation and all of these things that we bow to the altar of even in our culture today. And it was wrapped up in this idea is if you are a good religious zealot, you will do these things more and more. It was, it was out in the open. It was flaunted. And so Paul knew that the struggle for the newly converted believer, the one who is now following Christ, that the struggle was real, that that old life would come calling. Those old clothes would be like, you remember me? Do you remember how comfortable I was? Do you remember how freeing it was just to do what you wanted to do? And now you're in this church and they're telling you to clean up your act and to, to take it on the chin a little bit more and doing all these things that are uncomfortable, like these itchy clothes. Don't you remember how nice it was to wear me like an old sweater? You know, we often tell people that if when you come to Christ, there is an appropriate amount of what I would consider to be an incubation period, which is you are new to this, that you are walking new in a completely different occupation of life. And and it's not wise to be hanging with the same old philosophies, the same old crowds and all those things for a time until the Lord is able to build you up and strengthen you within and to change your desires, to change your tastes for those things that used to satisfy you or, or offer to satisfy you. Those things that used to draw you away. Now, in time, we go back sometimes to those areas to be an effective light, to be a witness where we can, where it's wise for us to do so. But there's, there's an incubation period that we should take. If I'm, if I'm new in this approach, if I'm new following the Lord, maybe I shouldn't think that going back to the temple of the goddess Diana and being around all that sort of stuff is something I can really, really withstand. 
Maybe it is going to draw me in a little too quickly. Maybe all my old alliances and friends and stuff are going to talk me in too quickly. That it's okay to distance yourself from that temptation, especially for a time as you're being built up in your faith. Please don't hear me say that we run from gospel opportunities, that somehow we say, well, that's just nastiness and and God's people don't belong anywhere near that to be a light. No, we can be and we should be. In fact, we continue to pray as a, as a congregation together about, Lord, what gets us in the places that perhaps we've neglected for so long? What gets us back in the, in the alleys and the dark street corners and the different things, sort of metaphorically speaking, of the, of the lives of the people around us so that we can bring a gospel light in strength and in unity? Lord, what are those opportunities? We don't run from them, but we must do it from a pure standpoint. I was talking with somebody this morning and I was like, you know, I, I, I feel like all of the, they didn't really intend this, but what I gathered so much from growing up and hearing such bold preaching and everything with this, they made it sound like sin didn't make any sense. That, that sin was just nasty and wicked. And why would anybody do this? And I'm like, I got a hundred reasons why people would do that stuff. Now I know where it ends and I know why people walk away from it, which we'll talk about, but I understand it's a temptation for a reason. It draws us in for a reason. It's on us to remain pure. So Paul says, as he testifies in the voice of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, that we no longer walk or conduct ourselves like the unbelievers do. Because he warns in verse 17, he continues, in the futility of their minds. Futility is a word that's, Talking about moral depravity, it's this aimlessness, it's this life that doesn't produce any results. I think of it as that person who's just banging their head against a brick wall and not going anywhere. And we look and go, why do you keep doing that? I don't know, it's all I've ever done. Paul is talking to an audience that could look at those worship practices and that heathen lifestyle and say, well, it used to feel like freedom to us. But eventually we woke up to the fact that we were in a prison, that we were enslaved to it. We were in bondage to it. And so now we start to see ahead of time, we know where that road ends and it starts off looking, sounding, feeling like freedom, but it's nothing but an entrapment. So here's my warning to us as we get started with this. When you are tempted by your old life and it is okay to admit from time to time you are. But when you're tempted by your old life, just be honest about its destination. Just have an imagination. I, I, I say this a lot of times that Christians don't have a big enough imagination. Like play out, if I do this next thing, if I say this next thing, if I engage this little kind of conversation, maybe it's a, a flirty thing with somebody of the opposite sex, or maybe I just a little cheat off the top when it comes to the money or something. If you do that, start to play the tape in your mind of where this thing ends. And I'm telling you, it'll scare you away from doing the first action almost every time. So I'm asking you just to pause and to let your imagination go forward. We often think, well, that's just playing out a fantasy or something. No, let's just think about the consequences. It turns into this. And then I have to say this. And then this becomes true of my life. You see, the Ephesians, uh, the believers there in Ephesus were starting to say, oh, no, we know where this thing ends up. So Paul is reminding them. Don't go back to those old clothes. You know what they produce. He says it's a futility. It's it's a problem of the mind. And when the scriptures talk of the mind, it's not just talking about our intellect 
like our smartness. That's involved in it. But it also adds into it the emotion of how we were built and wired and also engages our will. So it's a kind of a comprehensive thing. The mind is like the heart. It's the center of who we really are. It's our emotions, it's our smarts, and it's our will. What will we do? So I'm going to, as we look at this passage here, I'm going to ask you to do just a couple of things with it. And the first is to take an honest inventory of the old closet that you have. We're going to open that door. We're going to look at all the clothes that are hanging in it. And instead of looking at it and going, oh, yeah, man, I remember the good old days. And you see the varsity jacket hanging up there. You see the the prom dress. You see all those different kinds of things that stoke all those good memories. We're going to take an honest inventory of what's in that closet. So he continues in verse 18. He's saying they, that is the unbelievers, the Gentiles, who we used to be is what he's saying. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And where does this all start? He says it's due to their hardness of heart. The hardness of heart is what launches this whole downward spiral of darkness and of deadness and of a reckless life. So let's start with where the whole process starts. He says it's a hardness of heart. You know, I I don't know anything about medicine and that sort of thing, but I do know that when a bone breaks, they tell you if it's reset, that it'll heal back stronger. And then there's a calcification that comes. It's it's been referred to as like as hard as marble that happens when the bone is reset and repaired. And it's this growth kind of thing that kind of goes around it and and strengthens the whole thing. But it's harder than the soft bone was before. This is the word that is being used for us in the Greek is this calcification, a a thing that happens to our hearts as we shut our will down to the Lord and say, no, I will not follow you in whatever thing he's calling. No, I'm turning you down, Lord. I'm going to do my own thing. There's a calcification that starts to happen around our heart. And it results in a person who is unresponsive to the truth. They have shut their will down. This is why God um, uh, said in Ezekiel 36 that he said as he was talking of bringing the people along, that it wouldn't just be about a religious duty on the outside. He says, no, I will give you a new heart. In a new spirit, I will put within you. This was news to the, to the Israelite who was hearing what God would dwell in us. He says, and I will remove the heart of stone from the fle- from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A little bit later on, we'll look at Re- Romans 1 and we're going to see that Romans 1 says that this hardness comes as a result of the individual suppressing the truth. I see the truth. I know what you're trying to say to me. I, 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 I get what you're saying in terms of the content of it, but I'm not going to listen to it. I can't accept it. I won't accept it. I suppress the truth. Have you ever thought about the fact that we decide to block God? One of the best questions I had ever heard in sort of, um, you know, kind of how we engage our culture with, um, with spiritual things and stuff is asking someone who claims to be an atheist, well, when did you decide to become an atheist? And without thinking about it, they will answer the question. Oh, it was when it was this or when I saw that God wasn't who I thought he was or I can't believe in a God who would do. There's a starting point that is open to belief which confirms scripture that says that's something that's born within us, that eternity is placed in our hearts. 
There is a point in time where we say, I'm going to suppress the knowledge of God. I choose not to believe in him. It starts somewhere. We've already heard uh, Paul call out to us in, in Ephesians 1 that, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would know hope. And so again, he's saying that, that hardened heart, that calcification that's, ripped, that's wrapped around the heart, that it would start chipping off and breaking off and that the eyes of our heart would see who the Lord is and begin to hope in him again. A hardened heart wallows or steps deeper into darkness. And this is a, a term of understanding that we're looking at here in the scripture. This is when he says understanding, he's talking about the place of our imagination, our deep thoughts, not just the things that we just throw out there casually or, you know, thoughts that are flying randomly. But no, this is where we really ponder things. This is in the quietness of our of our souls that we're going. What? I'm trying to make sense of the world. I'm trying to make sense of my existence. And he says that understanding becomes darkened because they've shut down, they've suppressed the truth of who God is. It isn't a denial of the fact that there's intelligence there. It's not about the capacity that you have towards mental things. It's the orientation. It's how I'm looking at the facts that have been presented to me. That's what we're talking about here with a darkened understanding. I find it ironic that the age of enlightenment in the 18th century probably advanced this darkening state for the modern era more than any other movement as man became more self-reliant in their thinking and they were, quote, rejecting notions of blind faith. We don't need to do the whole spiritual mumbo jumbo thing. And some of those things, rightfully so, were pretty whacked out. You know, there was a God in everything and there was a spirit behind everything and all that stuff. And, and there was probably some reality that mankind was so simple in this that some intellect and scientific discovery needed to help. But it was a movement away from all things faithful. We should be able to scientifically explain everything, including our sick fascination with a creator. The poster child of this movement who is Ben Franklin, was a deist. And a deist believed that God has no continuing involvement in the world. I'm going to give him credit. He started the thing, but he's not around anymore. He's not involved with us. He's not engaged. Human intellect, at least in its ultimate impact, only enlightens when looking through the eyes of an all-knowing God. Yes, there have been incredible scientific discoveries from people who don't believe that God is real. Yes, we have gained from the knowledge of, of uh, the time and the period that we live in. But ultimately, how it all impacts mankind and what good is it for? I mean, look, we've got smartphones, right? And at every turn, we're saying, well, could you imagine? We live in this age where this little thing is, is processing more data than what rooms and rooms of computers used to be able to do. And so we'd say, yes, we've advanced intellectually to be able to produce this. But now even our culture is saying, is this a good thing for us? Is this helping our brains? Is this encouraging our hearts? Is this really making us more social creatures? This is a result of darkened understanding. Just because we can do it means we should. And we know that that isn't the case. Stephen Hawking, you know, considered to be one of the most brilliant minds that we've seen in our lifetime, 
went uh, on a predictive uh, scale uh, back in November of 2016, and he told CNN, this planet has about a thousand years to transport its population to another planet. Like, like the, the clock is ticking. This thing's wrapping up. This is, you know, all, you know, there's, there's robots to consider. There's climate stuff. There's all these things that he threw out there. And he says, we got about a thousand years. That was in November of 2016. Most brilliant mind that we've perhaps encountered in our lifetime. Six, seven months later, May of 2017, he says, I was off by 900 years. We got a hundred years to get off this planet, get to another one or else we're doomed. How does the most brilliant mind, clearly capable of outthinking anything you and I could ever comprehend on so many levels, get it wrong by 900? Did he just forget to add a zero? I don't think so. Is it possible that in his darkened understanding and his explanation of things that everything but God led him to believe there are other factors at play that I've got to say things out there differently? I, just in my own little research, I'm looking at it and going, oh, that was right around election time. You see, there's human intellect only enlightens when looking through the eyes of an all-knowing God. Even the the naturalist or the transcendentalist Thoreau kind of got it right when he said, we have improved means to unimproved ends. He was noticing that we're, we're doing a really good job getting places faster. We're just going to places we probably shouldn't be going. That darkness in our understanding leads to a deadness where there's no more hope in, in God. We are alienated from the life of God. We might remember that Paul uh, addressed this in the, the thinking of the, um, the Gentile back when we were in Ephesians 2. In verse 12, he was saying, now remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. As Gentiles, the Jews had a plan. God had spoken to them, had laid it out, and was working through them to display his glory. The Gentile was completely outside of that realm of relationship with God. He, they weren't outside of his plan because he had been saying all along, I'm eventually bringing them in. But they were outside of, his, of, his, of that relationship with an all-knowing God. And so he said that, uh, Paul said that the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he says this, Paul says that it's because of our ignorance that we were in that dead, a hopeless situation. It's not because we didn't know things. It's because we chose not to believe the things that we knew. It's important to note here, just kind of by taking a break as we go into these really dark and, and ugly and uncomfortable realms and stuff, that Paul is describing the worst of the worst. Paul is describing a situation that is um, that the, the, the outcome of how bad this can get when left unchecked. Now, we need to thank God that he has left moral checks in place in the lives of so many people. We don't leave here this morning going, everybody out there is just a bunch of wicked whatevers. We understand that we're going to encounter people who genuinely care about their community or their spouse or their kids or something like that. They may not acknowledge God. They may not make any time for him or surrender to their hearts to him. But there's still this kind of moral code, if you will, that they want to operate on. Paul is describing that when left unchecked and left to our own devices, that this is the ultimate reality that that old closet produces. 
The doctrine of the depravity of man says that man isn't as bad as they can be all the time. There are certainly varying degrees of some very terrible things that we've seen mankind do that we necessarily might not say, yeah, that's my neighbor. But but we understand the, the capacity for that evil lives in man. The doctrine of depravity says that all of mankind apart from Christ are as bad off as they can be. Regardless if they're a serial killer or somebody who's baking cookies. That they are as bad off without Christ. as I know I got you thinking about cookies now. There's a deadness to the effects of sin. And what happens as we go further down that path is that we open the door to all kinds of cravings of the heart. And that downward slope gets very ugly when left unaltered. So Paul describes it in these kind of reckless terms, a lack of feeling, a loss of feeling. It says in verse 19 that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I've been picking up a guitar uh, more recently and haven't played in a few years, as you guys saw a few weeks ago and everything that the skills had quite, you know, departed from me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, what I noticed at the longer I'm playing and trying to work through a few songs and everything, and the fingers are kind of going where they're supposed to. There's some muscle memory that's still there and everything. But the part that I miss the most is the calluses on the fingertips. The ones that allow me to press down on a string for, for 20 minutes at a time without even thinking about the fact that it hurts or anything like that. It's just there and I can play and I can, all of that's back now. So about two minutes into it, I'm really thinking about, can I keep doing this? This is what happens in the heart of a, of a person walking away from Christ or denying or suppressing the truth of him is that a callous forms over things. And then we start to say, well, since it doesn't hurt, I'm going to keep on going. The more I practice sin, like I would practice that guitar, the more I would work on a skill by being in that environment and playing it all the time, the less I feel any detrimental effects to it. So I can go for hours and hours and hours. Play that out in the realm of life that the closer I am in practicing the sin that, that tempts me or draws me in, the more that, uh, that, that, that the calluses build and I don't feel the effects of it anymore. And I start to move the, the line forward about what I can tolerate or what I can't tolerate or what others will tolerate in my life as I'm giving into that sin. We could say it simply like this, that practice sin attains increased levels of tolerance. Practice sin builds calluses on the parts that used to be, that you used to be sensitive to. Proverbs 27, 20 says, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, other versions basically say just as hell is never full, so human desire is never satisfied. And this introduces what I think is the most uncomfortable part of the whole text. When he says they've, they've developed these calluses, but they have given themselves up. Or your version might say given themselves over to this practice of sensuality. What do we always hear people say when it comes to um, addiction and recovery and an intervention of those addictions and stuff? People say, I don't have a problem. I can quit when I want. 
To me, the scariest thing in all of this is what if I get to a place where I can't recognize or feel the consequences anymore? What if I have just given myself over to a practice or a lifestyle or something like that that has drawn me in and I cannot control the end point like I used to think I could? I think this is what always happens, frankly, when left unchecked, without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, without other people coming in perhaps and saying, let me help you with this, let me help you see what, what I'm seeing without that kind of intervention. That's what happens to the human heart is we just get on a conveyor belt and it takes us deeper and deeper in to the point that we don't even recognize how deep we are anymore. Paul is warning, saying, please don't go to that closet, put that old jacket on, or put that old dress on or anything, and think you can take it off when you're done with it. It doesn't work that way. It, it has a life of its own. It grips. The buttons don't come off so easily. The zipper gets broken. And all of a sudden, you find yourself stuck and confined, and you say, I'm in too deep. I can't get out of this. I also think he gives us an interesting word here when he says that they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I can't camp on this long, but let me just make this point. Sin always takes advantage of somebody else. No matter what it is that we're talking about in practice, no matter what it is that we, we, we see other people doing, is usually where our minds first go, but even the sins of our, of our own actions are taking advantage of somebody else. Somebody is always the victim of our sin. We say this in the area of, of uh, I'll try to be audience appropriate here, but in the, in the um, online content and stuff that we consume and everything, we think there's, there's no victims, it's not hurting anybody or anything, but somebody is always caught, trapped, taken advantage of by something that someone is acting out of greed in their hearts to perpetrate. That's what sin is. It takes advantage of somebody else. Romans 1 uh, is, is one of the most poignant descriptions of all of this. And I came, I came across uh, uh, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of Romans 1, and I'm going to read it for you. We don't have time to comment on it, but I think it does a good job sum, summarizing what we've talked about so far. So again, this isn't going to read as tight as your scripture will. This is intentionally elaborated on because it's a paraphrase and sort of a commentary. Verse 18 begins in Romans 1. Now the holy anger of God is disclosed from heaven against the godlessness and evil of those men who render the truth dumb and inoperative by their wickedness. It is not that they do not know the truth about God. Indeed, he's made it quite plain to them. For since the beginning of the world, the invisible attributes of God, for example, his eternal power and divinity, have been plainly discernible through things which he has made and which are commonly seen and known, these, these, uh, thus leaving these men without a rag of excuse. They, know all, they knew all the time that there is a God, yet they refuse to acknowledge him as such or to thank him for, uh, for what he is or does. Thus they became fatuous in their arguments and plunged their silly minds still further into the dark. Behind a facade of wisdom, they became just fools. Fools who would exchange the glory of eternal of an eternal God for an imitation image of a mortal man or of creatures that run or fly or crawl. They gave up God and therefore God gave them up 
to the playthings of their own foul desires in dishonoring their own bodies. If you're new to faith, if this is your first Sunday, this isn't the talk of our pulpit from every single week. In fact, I think that most of us recognize right now this is a very uncomfortable place to have our minds going and to be thinking about and just sort of feeling like we're, we're deep in that pit of all that is wrong and all that is wicked in society, but also that all that can be wrong and wicked in us. And it's uncomfortable to be in, but that's kind of the point. Paul wants to spend all this time having you open that door to your closet and say, now I know that you think that stuff looks fun and is attractive and is nostalgic and all of those things, but it led you to the point that you needed rescue from God at one point. Do not forget that that's where that stuff always leads to. So therefore we can take a hopeful inventory of our new closet. Fortunately, Paul doesn't just leave us there with a scolding. He takes us into the place of what is available to us instead. So we pick up in verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What am I supposed to see when I open the doors to this new closet? What am I supposed to take in as I take an inventory? Is it, is it a, as an inventory of hope and encouragement? Of course it is. We start to see that we look at the sizes and we look at the, the tailored fits and everything. And we're like, it was made perfectly for me, far better than I could have ever ordered for myself. But it's not just personal because it fits me. It's personal in that who it introduces me to. Paul is laying out all these kind of studious terms. He says, you learned or you heard or you were taught. But all of this is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Stott says that Jesus is the subject, he's the teacher, and he's the atmosphere of our learning. We entered into a personal relationship with a real savior named Jesus Christ. That language there of, in verse 20, it says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Our minds think to going towards like if you were raised in CCD or you went to Sunday school or someone sat you down and taught you the things of Christ. We think classroom, but he's saying personal salvation relationship. That is not the way you encountered the living person that is Jesus. He said you heard his voice and the truth about him. But some would point out that that word about doesn't even belong there. That we might even be able to say, assuming that you have heard him, personal, the voice of Jesus in your life. And we're taught where? In him. Not just in his ways, but we were in the atmosphere of Jesus. Well, I didn't live back then. I didn't walk those steps. I think it would be far easier to believe if I was a disciple wearing those robes and sandals and seeing his miracles in front of me and all that sort of stuff. But we all have the same access to Jesus because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what we have discovered is that truth, the only truth is in him. Let me just ask you, we've spent a long time going through the Gospel of John. Some of you have watched TV shows or movies or stuff that portray the life of Jesus, and you've seen him sort of from a biblical perspective presented to you. Don't you find that every time you encounter the real Jesus, that you find a little bit more direction in your life, a little bit more peace, a little bit more familiarity, you go, oh, that's right, I've forgotten who he was. 
I've forgotten how patient he was or how graceful he was or how encouraging he was or directive he was. We walk away from him and we don't brush up on all that he is. We don't spend time in his presence enough to know that we are being raised in him, that we are learning him. And it isn't just our study of the gospels of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's, it's that he's on every page of the scripture. Jesus inspired every word. So when you hear people say, well, Jesus didn't comment on this, or this was the stuff I believe, the stuff in the red letters or something like that, understand that the, the doctrine of inspiration says that God breathed inspiration into all the writers of the scripture all through various times, all through various epics. Yes, using their personality and their vantage point, but the Holy Spirit wrote the words down. Jesus is the one writing every word of every page. So as we grow in our understanding of the scriptures, we become more acquainted with him, familiar with him. We're caught up in the atmosphere of him, but we are also uh, uh, living in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a very personal fit that we see in our closet. We start to see that it's kind of like our, 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 some of you guys would like this. It's like the whole closet's been out, outfitted with Carhartt stuff. It's like all this indestructible, able to withstand the workday, not tearing up on a, on a moment's notice and stuff. Ephesians 4.20 says to put off your old self, close the door to the old closet because it belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. It's, it's prone to decay. It's prone to fading away from ripping, tearing, destroying through deceitful desires. This is the introduction to a language that we're going to be keep sharing in the rest of Ephesians is put off and put on aspect because God tells you take these things off, but he never leaves us naked and exposed. He says, I want you to take this off because I have something far better for you. So much of the Christian life is an evaluation of what do I have to give up? I'm going to follow Jesus. What, what, I, gotta, I can't do this anymore. You mean I can't do this anymore? There's far too little view of all that we gain in replacement of all the things that lied to us anyway. When God removes your destroyed clothes, he always provides a better fit. These, these clothes that we had been walking in were corrupted through our deceitful dire, desires. Why? Because our hearts were impure. Our hearts were stained. But now these new garments cannot be stained by the impurity of our hearts. Because they're Jesus' righteousness. They're Jesus' clothes. It's important for us to understand as we wrap this up that Paul isn't just indicating how we should behave. I would imagine that there's several of you that have come in here today kind of going, okay, I want to follow the Lord a little bit closer. I want to know where hope lies. And it might sound to you like it's just a warning of don't do this. Don't do the gross stuff. Don't do the wicked stuff. Don't do the, all these kind of don'ts. It's like it's, it becomes an atmosphere of behavior. But, but the positive aspect on this, what Paul really wants us to see is what's already been done for us. He says, you don't have to wear the old stuff anymore. Not, you better not wear it or God's going to come and go. He's saying, why would you waste your time? We've been given all of this, the stuff that doesn't fade away, the stuff that doesn't tear away, the stuff that is built for eternity, built for community and unity. And you're going to trade it off and live in these old rags. Why would you do that? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
go ahead and wrap this up. I was thinking about the story of Lazarus this week and how, if you're not familiar with that story, Jesus is, he's got three very close friends, two sisters and a brother, people that he'll stop in on from time to time and visit with them. And he just loves them like siblings of his own. And he hears the terrible news. I'm sure he was aware, but Lazarus, the brother had died. And so he eventually comes and there's all this drama about why couldn't you have prevented his death and why'd you come so late and all these kinds of things. Ultimately, Jesus came to put his power over death on display. And so he shouts out to Lazarus who's in a tomb and his family's like, please don't call him out. He's really stinky. Like he's been dead for a few days. Don't do this. And so Jesus shouts out and probably this thunderous, just sort of like earth moving voice, Lazarus, come on out. And of course they, he, they start hearing a stirring and a, whatever and, and and this movement and then Lazarus makes his way out of the shadow and they can see him coming and it's got to be terrifying to see the walking dead coming towards you right what is the thing that Jesus says he says take off those things around him he's restricted he's tightened up in those grave clothes he can't move I've just given him life and he, and he can't spread out he can't live he can't hug his siblings he can't come and thank me who's done what what only I can do for him why because he's wrapped up in grave clothes this is what you and I were living in before knowing Jesus Christ until he called us out and he said we're going to take off those wraps and let you stretch out and let you spread out. Why? Because the Holy Spirit in you is built, uh, has breathed life into your lungs again. No matter how comfortable or familiar those old rags feel, they are ultimately grave clothes. And we need to remember that our old wardrobe only got us to where it got us to where we go. I need Jesus. I can't do this anymore. It only led us further into darkness, into isolation and death. We should always walk in humility, though, knowing that we were at one time were strutting around in grave clothes, thinking that we were looking fashionable, looking like we belonged in that environment. And we were saying, hey, man, I look good. And everyone's like, but you stink to high heaven, man. You smell like death. God removed those filthy garments from us and gave us a completely new closet, one that is tailored to fit our every need. One that is indestructible to the entanglements of, of the work that he's called us to do. And also one that is fresh and clean and unstained from the sin of who we used to be. The, the person in us that still wants to rear its ugly head every once in a while. That, that God in his grace has said, you don't have to listen to that voice anymore. You don't have to get dressed in the old closet. And what we're going to see going forward in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is how walking around in these new clothes is going to build unity all around us. It's going to change the interactions that we have in our life, the way that we, that way we approach our families, the way that we approach our work, all the things that the Lord has laid out for us still to do. If we come dressed appropriate to the work that we've been given, we will be blessed at every turn. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, as we pray. Lord God, again, I am thankful for the patience of your people and thank you, thankful, Lord, for your word. I'm thankful that we have pages that are a couple thousand years old, even, that still breathe new life into our, our existence today. Help us, Lord, truly to walk, to be preoccupied with the things of the life that you've given to us, that you've breathed into us. Help us, Lord, to put off the old clothes and to only wear the new, Lord, because those are the ones that display your beauty and your glory. They don't enhance us. They point every eye 
to your goodness. And that's what we long for in Jesus' name.